pastor, and uh, when I heard all the cheers, I, I don't know whether to have been offended or like, I'm with you uh, because I'm with you on that. Like, Taylor is going to be an amazing uh, person to pastor you all while I am away, and she does that even now. And so, super thankful for her and super thankful for you as well um, as we head into the summer as a church. Uh, Now, this morning, we continue on this new series called An Invitation to Wholeness, and we're asking the question, what does it look like? What does it mean? What do I have to do uh, to experience what we call wholeness? Not just happy, not just joyful, not just feeling all fuzzy inside, but what does it mean to actually, from head to toe, from inside and out, feel whole? In the ancient Jews, there was a Hebrew word called shalom that describes what we are pursuing and chasing after. Shalom means the word peace, but peace doesn't really do it enough justice because peace can oftentimes just an absence of conflict. But that's not what shalom means. Shalom means that we wake up every day feeling so content. And so no matter what the, the exterior looks like, no matter what we see on the news, no matter what we scroll through, no matter who or what we are being compared to, we're waking up in the morning knowing that we are held by God. And that alone makes us whole. That alone gives us shalom. But it's not just that you wake up and it just happens. There's a relationship involved, and there's parts of that relationship where we are responsible for as well in our own faith, in our own pursuit of wholeness. But But to begin, there's an invitation saying, receive this, receive wholeness. And the first step to receiving wholeness is to know that we need wholeness. Because many of us here, including myself, we come broken We come with what some would call baggage, and that's myself included, all of us. And the question is, what would it look like for God to redeem and restore the brokenness and the baggage in our lives so we can truly wake up every morning and say, no matter what, I'm experiencing shalom, peace. And so our text this morning comes from Luke, and it's a story that many of us have heard before, but I love teaching on this. It comes from Luke chapter 15. Uh, Let's start from verse 11. And the word of the Lord says this. And then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property, his wealth, between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property uh, and to dissolute, or some translation would say, reckless or wild living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So, this is the younger son, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods with the pig, where the pigs were eating because no one gave him anything. Some of you all know this story as what we would call the prodigal son. Uh, and so, let's pray and let's get started. God, thank you. God, I thank you for this, for this church and for where you have placed me. 
with all the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between, I'm so thankful that you've called me here, and I'm so thankful for our time of rest. And I'm thankful that with or without me, that you are moving in this church to pursue you, to pursue wholeness, to pursue each other, so that, way, that, that no matter what we bring to the table, that we will be seen, and not only seen, but known and loved in and through all of it. Because of your love. It's so beautiful, so strong. We thank you for your life, death, and resurrection that showed it all. May we pursue you with all that we have. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. All right, I'm going to start off this morning with being uh, a bit vulnerable by sharing a story uh, of the old Prentice. Uh, prior to uh, my relationship with God, well, really, I, I, I may have had a relationship with God. It wasn't until college I got serious about it. But in high school, uh, I was struggling, like maybe many of you, and I still do this today, with uh, my identity, with fitting in, with, with being cool, with being popular, with, with whatever it is. And uh, a part of that is, you know, hanging out, uh, what, I, what I would say and what I'll tell my parents, friends that were bad influences, but I would imagine they would say the same thing about me to their parents. I was the kid that may have been the bad influence on my friends. And we would get in trouble uh, throughout school, uh, throughout the school days. And, and a big part of uh, what we did was we, we liked to think that we were you know, we were soft inside, but we were so mean. And you know, we were kind of you know, I look back and I wish I can just line up people that I've hurt uh, and just apologize one by one. And I would imagine there would be a long line, especially with my friends and I. Uh, but I remember this one day, uh, my friends and I, we got into a little altercation uh, with, a, a other, with another group of friends. And, and when I say altercation, it may have turned physical and we got into what some would say a disagreement, some would say a fight. And after it was all over, a group of us got called into the principal's office. Uh, and there was a few people that left. They were, you know, dismissed. And some of them got suspended. Myself and a few others were sitting in the principal's office to hear probably a new, uh, news that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. They, the principal, myself and a few others, we're told that we were no longer welcome back to the high school that we were attending. We got expelled. Your pastor was expelled from high school, the old Prentice. But I remember, and I ended up finishing doing a running star program, all that to say is I remember that day. I, I remember it like it was just yesterday and just how hurt not only I was, how shocked I was, how hurt my family was, my parents. And I remember I felt so much shame, I ran. And the first person I went to at school was my wrestling coach who had mentored me, <clears throat> who would have me over for dinner, my family and I. And I would go to my wrestling coach and I said, Coach, Here's what happened, and somehow he caught wind of what happened. I remember, I'll never forget his, his response. I said, Coach, here's what happened, and his response was, Prentice, I am not your coach anymore. And, and I remember feeling so hurt, and, and again, so shameful, and so guilty, and, and the entire list. And then I went 
home and my parents weren't home yet. They got the news, but they weren't home yet. And I was so overwhelmed with so much shame in what I did and what the consequences of that was. Uh, I ran. I literally, I, I ran away. I, the story gets better, right? So I pack my bags and I get into my car. I was spoiled. I had a car in high school. Uh, it was a Dodge Caravan. It was beautiful. Uh, and I packed my bag and I went to a buddy's house uh, who let me stay with him. Uh, and the thing about this is my, my friend's house was literally one or two blocks away on the same street. And so I was the brilliant high school kid who ran away and parked the car right down the street from my parents' house where my parents would see every day. And, and a few days have passed and I wonder why haven't they not come and go, have they, are they looking for me? Uh, and, and, you know, those were the days where we didn't have cell phones, so it's not like they were calling me. I didn't know. All I knew was I just needed to run away. I, need to, I needed to hide. And then a few days later, here was my mom and dad knocking at the door of my friend's house. And I remember seeing them through the window, and I remember thinking, I... Wow, I just made matters worse. And not only did I just get expelled from high school, not only did I get in trouble for my wrestling coach, but now I am going to get in so much trouble. You know, my job, I'm like 17 years old. I'm going to be busted with my parents. They're going to ground me. They're going to take away this. They're going to take away that. They're going to take away the Dodge Caravan. They're going to do all these things. And when they opened the door, all they were doing was crying. They were crying. And I came to the door, and I remember I didn't hear any yelling. I didn't hear any screaming. I just saw crying, and my mom, the first words out of her mouth was, it's time to come home. It's time to come home. Have you ever felt like you've just blown it in life? I know I did. That wasn't my first. That wasn't my last. Maybe you've blown it with a friend. You just dearly hurt a close friend, especially in a moment in time when people are fighting over masks and over vaccines and over politics and, and, and all these things. I would imagine that many of us, we've burnt bridges, not only with our friends, but even our families. Have you, do you ever feel like you've blown it relationally with your friends, your family member, maybe even a spouse? And maybe this Mother's Day, again, there's, there's, there's moments where we want to celebrate mothers and women, but, but maybe it brings up a hard Sunday. And maybe for you, you've convinced yourself, mom or dad or caretaker, that you've also blown it as a parent. Maybe you made a huge mistake at work. Maybe it's a self-destructive habit that, that, that you just can't seem to kick. I know I have some. But whatever it is, I, I would imagine in a room with this many people uh, doing life that there are moments in our life, and maybe you bring that today where, where you just keep kicking yourself and you tell yourself, man, I've just blown it in that area of my life. And what's true about the human condition is this. 
We love to run and we love to hide. Just like when I got in trouble when I was in high school, I ran. I ran away. I physically ran away. And for many of us, that is a human condition. Anytime we're feeling that kind of hurt, that kind of pain, that kind of just I've blown it, the first thing we want to do is run. And, I, and this is no surprise. This is happening since the beginning of time with the first humans, Adam and Eve, who disobeyed God by eating the fruit. And what do they do next? They ran as if they can hide from God. And they covered up. When a moment they were created to, to, to be naked and to feel no shame, that's a metaphor of, of saying, you know, you should be vulnerably yourself with nothing to hide, with no shame, with no guilt. And suddenly, once they sinned and disobeyed God, they ran away, they hid themselves, and they wanted to not be seen by God and really by others. Maybe sometimes running and hiding for you is in, is in the form of defensiveness. Maybe it's not actually running away, but it's just defending yourself from the mistakes that you've made, from the ways that you've blown it. You just find ways to justify, to deflect, to gaslight, to to whatever it is, because that is your form of running away and hiding. Maybe it's by blaming others. Maybe it's by just stepping up and being aggressive. Maybe it's fight or flight, and you uh, possess that fight mentality in any time out of your own defensiveness, out of even knowing that you messed up, that I messed up, that we did wrong, our form of defensiveness and hiding and running away, ironically, isn't actually running away, but it's showing aggression and confrontation. Or, or maybe the way that you hide or run away from the mistakes that you've made by the ways you've hurt others is by cutting them out of your life. Because that's easy. That's one way to deal with it. I know I've done that before. And what we see is that biblically, <coughs> excuse me, and psychologically speaking, most would agree that the underlining driving issue of wanting to just continuously run and hide again is due to what we call shame. And now when we talk about shame, it's imperative that we talk about shame uh, and we explain what it is and we understand what shame is not. Researcher, professor, and author uh, who I enjoy reading, her name is Brene Brown, uh, she says this in her book, uh, Daring Greatly. She says this about, about shame and really guilt. Many of us, we have wrongly associated shame with guilt. Many of us have wrongly used these words interchangeably. But here's what Brene Brown says about these two words. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt says, I am sorry I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Furthermore, she says this, I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, I think shame is much more likely to be the source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or cure. You see, the awful part about running and hiding due to shame is is not only does it cause havoc, externally with your relationships around you. Again, we've seen this. We've done this. 
where we blame, we've been aggressive, where we run away, where we cut off. We've seen the brokenness of relationships due to our own shame and the way we handle it. So not only does it break relationships around you, but it causes chaos internally inside of you, inside of us. Shame attacks our identity, sometimes in violent ways, sometimes in subtle ways. And we start believing due to shame. We start believing these little lies about ourselves. Words like worthless, unlovable, unhealable, unrepairable, hopelessness. These are the words that we identify with when we're just soaked in shame from whatever we did. Last week, a, the family ministry pastor from Bethany Greenlake sent us all pastors this article on teens, actually, uh, and they would say Gen Y and older around mental health. And this is from the Atlantic, and, and here's what this article says. The United States is experiencing an, an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% to 44%, according to a new CDC study. This is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. The government, this government survey of almost 8,000 high school students, which was conducted in the first six months of 2021, and we all know what 2021 was like, found a great deal of variation in mental health among different groups. More than one in four girls reported that they had seriously contemplated uh, attempting suicide during the pandemic, which was twice the rate of boys. Nearly half of LGBT teens said they had contemplated suicide during the pandemic compared to the 14% of their heterosexual peers. Sadness among white teens seemed to be rising faster amongst other groups. And the writer concludes this, the big picture is same across all categories. Almost every measure of mental health is getting worse for every teenage demographic, and it's happening all across the country. And the writer ends with the number one culprit to this, especially for the young teens in America, is, you probably can guess, social media. And not that social media is the evil of the evilest, uh, but because of social media, the, p- these teens, and really not just teens, all of us, many of us who, who indulge in it, we can say that we've played the comparison game before. So many teens and maybe even adults have been bullied before. We've questioned our own body image, our own popularity before by scrolling things and comparing ourselves to others, and, and might I say others' highlight reels, which may not even be true in other people's relationships and and the happiness there or even the fact that they're in a relationship or, or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, what is creeping up through this comparison game, through social media, through whatever it is, it's shame again, over and over again, attacking our identity. And most of us can resonate with what this feels like. That's the danger of running. That's the danger of shame. 
and it's all around us. It reminds us of the ways that we've just missed it. It reminds us of the ways that we've hurt others and, and made that terrible mistake of whatever it is, and it becomes our identity. We begin to define ourselves by the sum of our mistakes and our pains. And we can also resonate with our text this morning, with the son in the story of not only experiencing shame, but how we deal with shame, of running away, of hiding. And many of us can place our story in the story of this runaway son. You see, it's important to acknowledge that this, that this parable that we're reading is that. It's a parable. It's a story that Jesus told to explain what the nature of God is like. It's not necessarily a true story, but it's an illustration uh, of explaining in, in, in accessible, in layman's terms, of the nature and the love and the, and the grace of God. And it says this, Luke 15, 1, 3, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So Jesus told them this parable to a wide range of people, tax collectors, sinners, even the religious people. And so no matter where you are, whether you're the most religious person, like the Pharisees, whether you are uh, the biggest sinner, like, like the Bible says, even tax collectors who are most hated around the Jewish community, he says, this story is for you. This story is for us. That the prodigal son is our story. And so is the eldest brother, and so is the father. And so we'll talk about that. In the story, Jesus points out there's two sons, the eldest and the youngest, but we want to focus on the youngest for today. The youngest son decides, for whatever reason, we don't know the reason, but there was some kind of discontent in his life, and he wanted to leave his father's house. In other words, he didn't want to be part of the family anymore. This nomenclature, the idiom of saying that this son wanted to leave isn't just, hey, I wanted to, I want to move out. Hey, I want to get my own apartment down the street. Or, hey, I want to get my own place downtown. No, this was far greater than just moving out. The son is saying, Dad, I don't want to be part of this family any longer. And if you want to talk about a mistake, there you go. Mistake number one. He abandons his family, his father, his mother, his brothers. And so the way he does it, he asks his father for a share of his inheritance. Now, just like many of us today, inheritance, we know, is what happens after a parent dies. But you see here, the dad has not passed away yet, and yet the son says, hey, dad, I want my inheritance now. Now, in the Jewish culture, in the first century culture, that is equivalent to a son saying, dad, I wish you were dead. He says, I wish you were dead, so give me my money, my wealth now, because not only am I abandoning, mistake number one, leaving the family, but now I want you dead dead so I can have your wealth. Mistake number two. Now, he, the, the son is just piling up mistake after mistake. Now, this would be absolutely appalling today for someone to ask for their, uh, their inheritance before the family member dies. It would be absolutely abhorrent in the first century in the Jewish culture. 
So mistake after mistake. But what's interesting is the father's response to the younger one asking for his share of his wealth. He says this, so he divided, so after the, the younger son uh, asks for his share of his inheritance, uh, he says, Father, give me my share of my property. Uh, so he divides, so here's a response. So the father divided his property between the brothers. Instead of getting angry after mistake after mistake, the father says, okay, I'm going to divide up my property, my, my wealth to you. Now, what's interesting is what we, don't understand, what we don't see from a plain reading of the text is the original word for this word property, the, the Bible is originally written in Greek, the original Greek word for property is the word bios. So really, you can put the word bios on there. So he divided his bios between them. And what bios means is it literally translates into life. It's where we get the word biology, life. And so again, we can reinterpret this by saying, so the father divided his life between the brothers. The point is this, the father gave his sons everything he worked for, everything he put his heart into, everything he put his life into, and he says, here is everything that I have to my sons, to you who ask, to you who wants to run away from the family, to you who wants me dead, no questions asked. I give you a part of my life that I worked so hard for. Again, no questions asked. And then in verse 13, it says, no, no longer... Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, so all, the, all of the wealth, and set off to a distant country. And he says where, we, where he squandered his wealth in wild living or reckless living. Now, we're not exactly sure what the son did. Later, there's clues that he was probably partying everywhere he went. He was seeing prostitutes. He was paying for who knows what. But regardless of what what the reason is, the Bible made it clear that in this story, the son took the wealth, took a part of his father's life, his bios. He says, here's everything that I have, everything that I work for. Take it, no questions asked. The son says, okay, thank you for my inheritance. Takes it and squanders it, loses everything. And you can fill in the blank of what it means to live a reckless life. I don't know. Maybe he was partying. He was gambling. He was, he was doing drugs. He was doing, I don't know what it is, but it was bad. And he lived recklessly. And all that money, all the wealth that the father, his, he worked so hard for, he called it his life, is now gone. It's gone. Mistake number three. Not only did he leave his family, not only did he wish his father dead, not only did he waste his father's life, his property, mistake number three, he lost everything. And not only that, in verse 14, it says, after he had spent everything, everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. At this point, at this point, I don't know about you, but, but if it was me, and maybe you would agree with me, it's time to grovel back. It's time to go home. Not only did I lose everything, now there's a famine. Now I'm starving. Now there's no food. I have nothing. 
I don't know about you, but for me, it's time to go home. It's time to go back, beg, go back to my father or my mother or my family's house with my tail tucked between my leg and just say, I'm sorry. But that's not what this person does. This son says, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs were eating because no one gave him anything. So instead of groveling back, instead of uh, going back to where he knows he could find comfort in his shame, he couldn't do that. He's already made mistake after mistake after mistake. He's not going to go back home. What he's going to do instead is, you know what? I'm going to go work for somebody else, and I'm going to eat. I'm going to feed the pigs, and I'm going to eat with the pigs. Now, I don't want you to miss this. This younger son comes from a Jewish family. He's still, for all intents and purposes, a Jewish person. And what we know about the Jews and their food laws is they didn't associate with swine, with pig or pork. They didn't have bacon. Can you believe that? Because it was considered unclean, unholy. And yet here he is, instead of going home, instead of going back to where he knows he could find comfort or maybe due to his shame and his guilt and his wanting and his desire to hide from all the mistakes he's made, he said he'd rather... Be with the pigs. That's a big statement for someone who lived a full Jewish life. Have you ever been so overwhelmed with these lies about yourself that you've convinced yourself that being seen is too hard? Like this son, sometimes being seen is just so darn difficult. That it's better to run, it's better to hide than to be vulnerable and to be known by others. Because we feel like we've made too many mistakes. We, we feel like we have too many skeletons in our closet. And so what we need to do, what we convince ourselves of, is we need to run away. We need to hide, no matter how hard it is, because we've all experienced how hard it is just to keep to ourselves, to, to, to just sweep things under the rug, to just not talk to anybody, to be isolated. We've experienced that. But for whatever reason, many of us, we believe that it's better to be in this pain by ourselves than to be seen by others. This was the son. But look what it says in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, so the son says, what am I doing? What am I doing? He came to his senses. We don't know how he, or what his process was. He, says, he said to himself this, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out to go back to my father's and say to him, Father, I have sinned against the heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father's house. I love this image where he's eating with the, with the pig. And he finally comes to his senses and he says to himself, What in the world am I doing? What am I doing? And he devises this plan. He says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to my, you know, I'm going to drop my pride, my ego. I'm going to go straight to my dad. And I'm going to say, I've sinned against the heavens, really sinned against God. And I've sinned against you. And he says this. He says, okay. And then I can imagine he's wrestling with himself. He's pacing back and forth. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to go to my dad. And I'm going to say, dad, I'm sorry. I've sinned against you. And he says, 
I'm going to ask dad that if, can I work for you? I'm going to, okay, that's it. Dad, I want to work for you because I know that as one of your employees that you will feed me and I won't be hungry. Okay, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. He rehearses it over and over again. And then he goes, he goes towards his father's house and he's ready to, to say what he rehearsed. Now notice what happens in the next verse. It says, but the father said to his servants, oh, sorry, but, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son of, and he said to him, uh, father, I have sinned against you, against the heavens, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Do you notice the order of the operation there? He has all these things rehearsed. And then he goes, okay, here's what I'm going to say. I'm brave. I'm strong. I'm going. I'm going. He sees the father from far away, and he doesn't even get a chance to say what he had rehearsed. The dad, no questions asked, runs to his son with his open arms to embrace him. And it's after that where the son repeats what he had rehearsed. Now, what we know about the Jewish culture in the first century is that kings didn't run to anybody. Everybody ran to the king. And so this was a huge statement that Jesus was saying in the parable, that this king stood up and ran towards the son and embraced the son without any explanation. Not only that, the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, put it in a ring, put a, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf to kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate for the son of mine was dead and, al- and it now is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And I would say this for many of us, it is time to come home. It's time to come home. Home is where we belong, where we are accepted. No matter what what mistakes we've made in our lives, no matter what we use to define our identity, the invitation to wholeness is to drop all of that and to come home. Home is where we belong. Home is where we're accepted. Home is where we are worthy. Home is where we're not defined by our mistakes. Home is where there's no shame. Home is where we are loved and embraced, just like the story of the son. And maybe this story doesn't exactly describe your home, but it's the home that Jesus invites us to. It's the home of Christ where you are loved, where mistakes, hurt, sadness are transformed and redeemed. No longer is your story a fill-in-the-blank No longer is your identity, I am fill in the blank. I am unworthy. I am unlovable. I am a disgrace. I am shame. Whatever. That is no longer your story. It is time to come home and to be embraced by God who loves you. No questions asked. And it's around that identity that we grasp onto, first and foremost, that initiates our wholeness. You want to be whole? It's time to come home. One of my favorite theologians, Willie James Jennings, he says this, we who follow Jesus are working in wounds, working with wounds, and working through wounds. 
Jesus takes all of us, our good, our bad, our ugly, our wounds, and everything in between, to write us a different story, to give us a new identity. In Isaiah, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us to peace was on him, on Jesus. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus says your shame and your mistakes, your hardship, your sadness, your trauma, it is finished and no longer has power over you. What is most powerful in your life is to to find your identity in the invitation that God has for all of us through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Your mistakes, your shame, nailed on a cross. Like a loving father, like a loving mother runs and embraces you with no explanations needed. This home, you are safe, you are loved, and Jesus says, you are mine. Wholeness starts here, knowing that you, that we are God's beloved. May we know that, not only today, but forevermore. That in light of whatever mistakes, no matter how you identify yourself with whatever pain or trauma or anger or mistakes you've made, that is not what defines you. It is by the cross of Jesus. May you receive that. And as I invite the worship team back up in our time of reflection, I invite you to take out this response card. And if you didn't get a response card or a pen or a pencil, uh, I'll have hand. If you raise your hand, we'll get this to you. And it's just a practice. There's nothing magical about this card. But even if you read any books on habits, uh, atomic habits being one of my favorites, is that what we write down it statistically has a better chance of surviving in our brains and our experiences. And so on this response card, the question is this. There's a question to consider. And the question I want to ask is, are we on the run? Are we on the run? What is it that is causing you to run? Is there shame? Is there a mistake? Is there a pain? Is there a memory that you just can't Release. Name that. Confess that. You don't have to share it with others. Just write it down. And the next step would be then to enter a state of confession. Maybe it's just between you and God at first. And then maybe it's with others. But we can't do this alone. There's no need to run anymore. Your shame is covered. Your mistakes are covered. Let's name it. Let's enter into community with it. Let's confess it. And may we be released to it as we run back home to God, our Father, our Mother. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. That, it, that frees us. That gives us hope. That helps us release whatever shame or anguish that we're holding on to. For many of us, we bring that baggage into this sanctuary. God, may we leave without it because you have lifted it off our shoulders. And may we just run to you and find our identity first and foremost in knowing that we're loved and we're cherished by you, not by anything else. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue and let's finish with worship and reflection.